Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here again. It's not so good to be still in an empty room, but it's good to know that uh, we're able to uh, broadcast some singing and uh, this message. Uh, I miss you. I can't wait to see you soon, eager for us to gather again. And yet here we are. Here we are. And uh, this is a complicated time, it's a difficult time, it's a challenging time, and sometimes I miss being a kid. Life was less complicated. Uh, problems seemed fewer and smaller. I have great memories of camping and spending seemingly an entire day looking for sticks as a kid. Uh, I remember in the summers uh, taking my bike and riding downtown to the public pool and enjoying a day in the water. Uh, I remember as a kid eating a lot of fudgesicles on hot, sunny days, and uh, perhaps, perhaps the best thing ever invented. A thousand and one little joys when you're a kid. Now, looking back, it's almost as if kids were supposed to be happy. You know, being down, really wasn't an option. So someone even created a song that at least one of my teachers would have us sing when I was in school. If you're happy, maybe you know it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Now here's a little change. If you're happy and you know it, and you really want to show it, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Well, I don't recall the teacher ever allowing us to opt out of the singing or the clapping. You couldn't sort of raise your hand and say, well, actually, teacher, I'm not really feeling it today. So I think I'm going to be quiet and keep my hands at my side. Now, the teacher expected all of us to participate. She expected all of us to be happy. And frankly, most of us were a thousand and one little joys when you're a kid. Now, sometimes the Christian life can feel a little bit like that classroom. We are supposed to be happy. We're supposed to clap our hands and stomp our feet and show the world that we're doing great, even when we don't feel happy on the inside, even when we're anxious or depressed or worried or afraid. I found it interesting when a comment was made earlier that uh, sometimes you might receive uh, a call or an email, a text from an elder, and maybe be tempted not to share exactly how you're doing, perhaps because you feel an expectation that, well, I'm a Christian, so I better be doing well. Well, that, we know that's not always the case. Now, Christians typically use the word joy instead of happiness because we find that word joy throughout the, the Bible. And so we would say that we, we know that we are supposed to feel joyful. And then when we don't feel joyful, well, that's when we may begin to worry. We may begin to ask ourselves a number of questions. Uh, what does my joylessness say about me? What does my joylessness say about my faith? What does my joylessness say about my walk with the Lord? I've been a pastor long enough to know that joy can be a very tricky thing to talk about. It can, be very, it can be a very discouraging topic for many believers, especially for those believers who struggle repeatedly with experiencing the kind of joy that they understand the Bible to teach they should experience. So, as has been mentioned repeatedly, this is the sixth Sunday in a row that Mount Vernon has not been able to gather. Uh, the novelty 
of sheltering in place has basically worn off. Uh, we are ready to re-engage the world. Some of us are worried about what the future holds. And so this, I think, is a good day to talk about joy. Now, I continue to pray uh, every day that God would use COVID-19 and all its implications to bring about revival in our church. Uh, certainly, I want an awakening in our country, and I pray for that as well. But when I use the word revival, I'm talking about God reviving a faith that's there, but that isn't as strong, as robust, as vibrant as it ought to be. And so what I want God to do is to overwhelm us afresh with a sense of his, his, his compassion and his mercy and his grace, because I believe that's what revival is. It's a greater sense of appreciation for the magnificent work of God in his people. And so that's what I'm praying would come forth from this strange and difficult season. And as I've mentioned already, God has certainly done this before. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 85, where uh, a national catastrophe of some kind uh, hit Israel. Who knows, it may even have been a plague or pestilence of some sort. And it was in the midst of that calamity that the psalmist in verse six prayed, God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So then at various other seasons in the history of God's people, and certainly now we need revival. And so God has allowed this virus into our lives. And now we pray that God would rain down revival at the same time. And when revival comes, so does joy. Joy is the reason the psalmist prayed in Psalm 85, verse 6, will you not revive us again? Why? That your people may rejoice in you. All right, the, the prayer is for revival, and the fruit of revival is joy. Now, there are many wonderful blessings that we can expect to receive should God rain down revival on our heads. We can expect to see a people who do good to all, especially to the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. We can expect to see a people filled with boldness for God and for his gospel, 2 Corinthians 3.12. We can expect to see a people longing for Christ's second coming, Lord, come quickly, Revelation twenty two twenty one. But when the author of Psalm 85 prays for revival, he prays it because he wants joy, and not any old joy. He wants joy in God. Now, this heart for joy is carried on into the New Testament. Before Paul concludes his letter to the Thessalonians, one of the first of his epistles, he exhorts the believers in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, not sometimes, but always. It's as if Paul's expectation is that new covenant believers are always going to be experiencing revival. Well, you can think about that perhaps this afternoon. Now, I know that it's hard to believe right now, but believe me, before you know it, COVID-19 will be in our rearview mirror. It's true. It's going to be like a car 
uh, on the side of the road because it ran out of gas. I guarantee it. And, and I don't want this trial to end without seeing God use it in our lives for good. I'm eager for God to do a work of revival in my life, in your life, and in the life of this congregation. I'm eager for God to bring us joy. I'm praying for joy. Now, the past few weeks, I've been asking the question, well, what, what can we do to prepare Right? If we have this expectancy that, that God is still in the business of revival, we recognize revival comes from God. Is there anything that we can be doing to, to prepare? Right? When you know a, a feast is, is about to be served, you set the table. Right? How can we set the table of our lives to prepare for revival? Well, we can devote ourselves to self-examination. And that's a, I think that's a healthy way to prepare ourselves for the Lord to be at work in our lives. Self-examination. Right? We can take a, a long, hard look at our spiritual house and try to see what is out of order. And as we inspect each floor of our spiritual house, Eventually, we're going to come to a room with 1 Thessalonians 5.16 written above the threshold. Rejoice always. Let's walk in and see what we find. Now, before we can understand why Paul would tell this church to rejoice, we need to have a sense of the letter as a whole. And this isn't going to take a little bit of time. And you may even think that I've forgotten to talk about joy. Well, I haven't. But we need to prepare ourselves by understanding 1 Thessalonians before we can truly appreciate those two little words, rejoice always. Setting the stage is important. Now, God used Paul's preaching to plant a church in Thessalonica. Unfortunately, Paul could not stay long in Thessalonica because he faced opposition. And in fact, the opposition grew so intense, so violent, that it forced Paul to flee the city entirely. Now, eventually, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, to this young church. He sent Timothy to check on them and see how they were doing. And after getting this report from Timothy, Paul wrote the letter that we call First. Thessalonians. It may be Paul's warmest letter in, uh, of all of his letters that we have. This may be his, his warmest, most affectionate letter. He shares that, that love that he has for this church, and he shares it in a letter. A few days ago, Dina found a box of letters that uh, I wrote to her way back when, uh, before smartphones and before email, I told her about my life, what I was doing. Uh, I was thousands of miles away for some of that time. Uh, I shared with her my feelings. These are not the kinds of letters that I would prefer to read right now aloud. But I tried to inform her, and I tried to encourage her. And that's what Paul did in his letters. 
Now, the difference is Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. His words are God's words. And his words aren't merely for the Thessalonians way back then. His words are for us here today. And that's what makes God's letters so amazing. They feed our souls even today. Now, Paul begins by sharing how encouraged he is by the church. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, For we know brothers and brothers and sisters, for we know brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is convinced that the gospel of God was warmly received by the Thessalonians. It's, it's changed them. It's done a good work in their, their lives. He's, Paul is confident that they, they truly know the Lord. And it, it grieves Paul that he can't be with them. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered them. Sound familiar? Paul was hindered from meeting with the church that he loved, just as we have been hindered from meeting together. Of course, the reason is different. Persecution afflicted Paul. A coronavirus has afflicted us. But it's not just Paul who was afflicted. It's not just Paul who suffered. The Thessalonians themselves faced suffering as well. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, Thessalonians, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So that sounds a lot like what we saw already in chapter one. He's commending them for, for positively receiving the gospel that he preached. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, as they did from their own Jewish neighbors, the first to oppose the, the gospel. So in other words, this church in Thessalonica proved that they embraced the gospel by being willing to suffer for the gospel. And Paul's concern, as Timothy lets him know that these young believers are being afflicted for their faith. Paul's concern, recognizing this is a fallen world, his concern is that some of these believers are going to make a shipwreck of their faith, that they are in the, in the fire, in the flames of persecution, that they are going to, to walk away from Jesus. And so in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, Paul writes, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul knew that Satan would seek to make a shipwreck of their faith. 
Well, in Psalm 85, uh, a, a national catastrophe hit all of Israel. In 1 Thessalonians, suffering, uh, persecution has afflicted the whole church. And so very early on in their Christian journey, they have really reached a fork in the road. They can use this trial as an opportunity to draw closer to the God who saved them, or they can use this trial as an excuse to run away from God. And if they run away from God, Paul says that, well, in that case, his labor, his labor of preaching and discipling would be in vain. Now, you and I need to be honest about suffering. All right, there's no, there's no good in, in glossing over it, in, in failing to deal with it head on. Uh, you don't have to wallow in suffering to be honest about suffering. Trials have the, the power to cripple us, at least trials in the hands of the evil one and recognizing our own selfish hearts, trials have a way of working on us in, in such a way that we are tempted to abandon the Lord. And trials come in all shapes and sizes. I mean, so often it's easy to neglect the reality of our own trials because we know that someone, you know, around the corner is facing something so much worse. But the deal is like their trial isn't your trial, right? You've got to be honest about the trial that God has allowed into your life. That's your trial. That's your suffering. And you need to be honest about that, regardless of how it, it, it stacks up to the trials of someone around the world or someone around the block. And so the list of, of trials is, it's practically endless. It's as big as a fallen world, right? For the Psalm 85 believers, it was some national catastrophe. But the list of trials is, is, is huge, a broken friendship. Right? A failing marriage, a rebellious child, uh, a broken leg, a divorce, infertility, a sickness, a layoff, and of course, death. And if we aren't careful, right, trials like this will damage our faith in God. I know that's a simple and obvious thing to say, but it needs to be said because this is the concern Paul has for the Thessalonians. Now, I want you to picture your faith like a rock, a rock that is fixed in a tiny stream of water that is trickling down a tall mountain, right? Do you have that picture in your mind? Your faith is that rock. It's fixed in the middle of a, of a tiny stream that's gently flowing down a very tall mountain. Now, what happens when the rain really starts to come and the water really starts to rise? It's a heavy rain. And that trickle of water, well, it, it grows into a really strong stream. And the water keeps coming and that stream turns into a, a raging river. Well, what's going to happen to that rock? What's going to happen to the, the, the rock is it is most certainly going to be shaken it's going to be shaken, but will it be moved? Right? Will it stay in place? Will it be so unsettled that it actually becomes dislodged and flows down what's now a river falling off the mountain entirely? Now, this is the precarious 
place of believers in Thessalonica. And Paul spends the rest of his letter encouraging these believers to hold fast, right? To stand firm, to fight the good fight of the faith. And, and the best way, at least for these believers at this time, which I take to be the best way for all believers of all time, right? The best way for them to fight this good fight, to, to shore up their faith when the waters of affliction are rising, the best way is to, to run hard after God, right? In very practical ways, to run hard after God intellectually, to run hard after God emotionally, which is to say to run after God spiritually as, the, as your spirit includes your mind and your heart. And that's how Paul leads them in chapters four and five of First Thessalonians. So Paul exhorts them to purity in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul exhorts them to love, right? not unlike Brad a few moments ago. Paul exhorts them to love in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. He urges them to hard work. That's interesting. Work hard. Work hard, he says, in verses 11 and 12. Uh, he charges them, he really gives a, a good chunk of the letter, charging them to wait patiently for the Lord's return. Now, part of this was addressing an intellectual challenge that some of these new believers had, wondering what happened to their believing friends who died and Christ hasn't come back yet. So Paul instructs them, like, don't, don't worry, they're okay. If they died in Christ, they will one day rise with Christ. He charges them to wait patiently for Christ's return in chapter 4, 13 through chapter 5, verse 10. But, but more than anything, what Paul is doing is calling them to encourage one another in difficult days. So look at chapter 4, verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right? Encourage one another with the words that, that I'm giving you. And look at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. But do what you're doing. I, I hear what you're doing. Timothy's told you what, told me what you're doing. Keep doing it. Keep encouraging one another. Keep building one another up. All right. It's very important that you understand this. It's not just that Paul is encouraging them as the apostle to the congregation. Paul is commanding the congregation to encourage one another. It's as if Paul is teaching that their future faith, their future uh, confidence in the Lord is dependent to some degree upon their unity, upon their spiritual togetherness. Their perseverance in the faith to some degree is dependent upon their faithfulness to one another. Now, in saying that, I certainly don't want to take anything away from the rock-solid reality that our faith is in Christ alone. And what we need fundamentally is Him, not one another. But to say that we don't fundamentally need one another is not to say that we don't need one another. And so Paul is not merely encouraging them. He's 
commanding them to encourage one another because we, church, are a means of grace God has ordained for our welfare. One way God protects believers like you and me who are facing the powerful waters of affliction is through the personal and soothing encouragement, the kind of encouragement we find in a local church. Now, let me speak for a moment to the kids. Uh, have you ever been to a birthday party? Give you a moment to think about that. All right, they are fun for a ton of reasons. They are fun because of cake and ice cream and presents. But what really makes a birthday party special is having your family and friends there. That's really great. That's a really wonderful thing. Now, some of you are having your birthday in the midst of a global pandemic. So just stand up if your birthday is taking place in the midst of quarantine. Just stand up. Oh, look at that, really? Yeah, so here, uh, David Rowe and Dustin Butts uh, both stood up because uh, they are not gathering with friends to celebrate their birthday. And uh, so we just want to give you guys a round of applause. So uh, I don't know, maybe your parents will do something about that later. Um, in any event, do you know the feeling that you get when people gather around you for your birthday? And I'm not talking about the fact that they brought a present or they brought cake and ice cream. Do you know that feeling you get just like in your heart when you look around the room or you look around the yard and you see all these people and they came, well, they came to celebrate you because they're glad for you and they're glad to be a part of your life. Do you know that feeling? Well, there's a word for that feeling and it's called encouragement. And that's what encouragement is. It's just this, 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 this feeling you get when you're overwhelmed with the fact that these friends and family really do care about you. Well, Paul here is talking about encouragement, but not the kind of encouragement that we give at a birthday party. He's talking about the kind of encouragement that we give as a church. And it's the encouragement that we need to persevere in the faith, to stay strong in trials. So every word of encouragement, every act of encouragement is like a small brick that God places in that river around the rock of our faith to protect that faith so it's not moved by the rushing waters. And so I pray that God uses COVID-19, this crisis, to give us a greater love and appreciation for the local church. God in his kindness has given us brothers and sisters to strengthen our faith. We aren't perfect, right? We often fail, but we are exhorted by the Bible to be in one another's lives. Now look at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12. Now, our Bibles have paragraph breaks and headings that weren't in the original text. In other words, those paragraph breaks, where the paragraph breaks 
and whether or not there's a bold heading. Well, that wasn't written by the, the Holy Spirit. They were added later by editors so that we could read our Bibles more smoothly, more easily. Sometimes those breaks can lead us to think there's sort of a break in thought or that something is disconnected from what came before it, and that's not always very helpful. Well, verse 12 follows verse 11 for a reason. In verse 12 and on, Paul is explaining how we can encourage one another. He's explaining how the Thessalonians are, in fact, building one another. Like, this is how. This is what I want you to keep on doing. That's what's going on there. So, for example, in, in, in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul says that, that pastors and elders are, are meant to encourage us. They labor among us, caring for our souls, praying for us, teaching us. And that's why they deserve more than respect, right? We are to esteem them in love. And that's what Paul is saying there because they, they are to encourage us. Look at verse 14. God uses those who are strong to help those who are struggling, maybe someone who's struggling with idleness or faint-heartedness or weakness of, of some kind. Right? Various seasons in our lives, some of us will be stronger than others. And during those seasons, we need to make sure that we are using the extra grace that God seems to have poured out in our lives to be a blessing to others. Look at verse 15. God uses the gracious, the gracious, the forgiving. God uses them to encourage people who sin against them. Imagine that, even in the church, people sin against you. Imagine that, even in the church, sometimes in our, in our fleshliness, because indwelling sin is such a reality, we, we actually do evil to others, gossiping about them, saying untrue things about them, being unkind to them. And Paul says we're to be forgiving, we're to be gracious, we're to encourage them in our graciousness. We're not to pay back evil for evil. No, far from it. We're to do good. We're to do good. Just as we're to do good to everyone, we're to do good to those who have, have sinned against us, done evil to us. It's how we encourage. That's a hard thing to do. It's a command. Now, now so far, what Paul is doing is he's showing that, that how we treat one another, right, how we treat one another in the church body is a way to encourage one another, right? Does that make sense? How we treat one another is a way of encouraging one another. But listen carefully. We can also encourage one another, not merely by the way we relate to one another, but by the way we relate as individuals to the Lord. How we relate to the Lord is a way we encourage one another. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoicing in him, praying to him, giving thanks for him. This is our posture, our attitude toward God. And Paul intends that posture, that relationship with the Lord that you have, he intends that thing, that relationship, that engagement with God to be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters, right? It's how, very practically, this is how God strengthens our faith, not merely by how we relate to one another, 
all right? Friends, non-Christians are able, because of common grace, to relate well to one another. It's a very unique Christian thing to rejoice in the Lord, right? To give thanks for the Lord, to pray in dependence upon the Lord. When I was a very young husband, I had no idea what I was doing. You see, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. And so I, I didn't know what a Christian marriage was supposed to look like. I mean, I, I read books about marriage and books are great, but sometimes it's difficult to get the texture of the thing from reading a book. I wanted examples and I'd never seen a Christian marriage. And so I had a hard time connecting the gospel of God that saved me to the wife that married me. How does this work out? How does being a Christian man sort of flesh itself out in the daily routine of, of marriage? Now, thankfully, God and his superb kindness brought some people into Dina's in my life. They uh, are about a decade older than us. Two Christian couples, Mark and Connie and Matt and Eli, and they showed us uh, simply by allowing us to spend time with them, they showed us how to pray together, how to live together, how to fight together, how to build a life around the gospel together. And by seeing that relationship, by seeing how these husbands and wives related to one another, I was encouraged. I was encouraged to, to be a better, a better husband. Well, in verses 16 to 18, Paul says... We're to be encouraged by seeing how, one, how we relate to God, how we engage God in rejoicing and in praying and in thanking. In verse 16, he says we're to rejoice in God always, even when affliction comes. In verse 17, he says we're to pray continuously without ceasing. I think Dustin, happy birthday, Dustin was exactly right a few weeks ago when he said what this means is not necessarily that like every moment of the day you're praying, but that you're not to let affliction keep you from praying. I mean, Dustin was so right when he, he, he talked about this very verse not long ago. And, and he, he said that it's one thing when the trial immediately comes, you're sort of engaged, I'm going to pray. And then the weeks go by and your prayers become a little bit shorter and they, 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 they lack a little bit of vibrancy. Right? And the Word of God challenges us. The Word of God says, pray without ceasing. Don't give up. Prayer demonstrates faithful dependence upon God who can help us. In verse 18, he says that we're to give thanks in all circumstances, whether we have, a, whether we have every earthly comfort or we're, whether every earthly comfort has been removed. Right? We're to give thanks because God is with us. And this is how we relate to God. Right? In the privacy of our closet, but not merely in the privacy of our closet. As we live in community, whether it's for this season, a kind of virtual community, but typically, and it will be once again, uh, life together in community, face to face, people are to see how we engage with God, right? Not just how we engage with one another, as important as that is, right? Giving cookies to one another, hugely important but how we engage with God is also a means that the Lord uses to strengthen our faith. 
And when our brothers and sisters in Christ see us give thanks, they'll be more content. When they see us praying without ceasing, they'll be more persistent. And when they see us rejoice, they will be more confident in their God who saved them. Okay. Now, having said all of that, I'm ready to double-click on 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and on the particular aspect of our relationship with God that I said I would be talking about today, and that is joy. Rejoice always. I want us to think about joy, what it is, why it's important, and how we can grow in it, how we can get it, how we can foster it and encourage it. So what is joy? Joy is very simply delightful confidence in the God who saved you. That's what joy is, delightful confidence in the God who saved you. Now, obviously, I'm talking to Christians here. I say confidence because the foundation of of joy is not emotion, right? It's it's history. We rejoice not because our spirits are, are up for whatever reason. No, we rejoice because the tomb is really empty because Jesus really rose from the dead, because through his cross and resurrection and ascension, he accomplished something real. He accomplished salvation for sinners, right? That's history. And so we're, we're confident in what the Lord did. We're confident in who he is, right? That, that truth, that gospel truth is and always has been the substance of every true believer's joy. Now, in that sense, Your joy is not dependent upon your circumstances or upon your trials. In that sense, you can be joyful even when you are sad. They are not mutually exclusive. Joy and sadness are not mutually exclusive. So, if I paint my house green, it is green whether the sun is shining or whether or not the sky is overcast. The color of my house is the same. It is green. That's an objective fact. Now, on a sunny day, admittedly, the paint may shine a little bit brighter, but it's the same color. The color doesn't change because the clouds come. The joy is like that. Our confidence in God does not weaken because of trials. God has already proved himself good at the cross. He's already shown himself to be savior, right? So we can rejoice in him. And so I really like how how the author Randy Alcorn puts it. He He described it like this. He likes the word happiness, but joy is ours today because Christ is here. It's ours tomorrow because Christ will be there. And it's ours forever because he will never leave us, right? I like that, that idea of confidence. It's our, it's our confidence in the Lord. He's with us. He'll be with us tomorrow. He'll be with us forever. And so our joy, likewise, is as eternal as the Son of God incarnate. But it's not sufficient to say that joy is confidence in God. That's not sufficient. No, joy is, it's delightful confidence in God. It's a confidence that leads you to be thrilled by who God is and by what he's done. So for joy to be joy, 
God and his gospel, they've got to delight you. They've got to please you, right? You can't just be confident of what's true. You've got to be pleased with, delighted in what's true. Joy is delightful confidence in what God has done, in the God of your salvation. And this is how the Bible treats joy. Those who have joy in the Lord are glad. They're glad. Those who have joy in the Lord sing. Right? They sing. Those who have joy in the Lord, figuratively speaking, have a bounce in their step. So think about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch after Philip shares the gospel with him and the Ethiopian eunuch is, is saved. And what does he do? He went on his way rejoicing. And you can just picture in your mind what that must have been like. I mean, he's ready to go back to Africa. He's got the gospel. He's got new life. He's ready to get to work serving the Lord, loving the Lord, honoring the Lord. He went on his way rejoicing, right? Joy is delightful confidence in the God who saved you. He, the eunuch, wasn't merely confident God had saved him. He was thrilled God saved him. Again, that's why I call joy delightful confidence. So we might say that joy is an, an inward affection that finds an outward expression in praise and adoration and song. Now, there will be times, there will be moments when our joy is less obvious so I hope that you're picking up. I'm arguing that for the Christian, it's always there. It sort of gets to the heart of what it is to be a Christian. You're thrilled God saved you. But there will certainly be moments, seasons, even when our joy is less obvious, when the, when the, when the paint doesn't shine. Christians experience dark nights of the soul, nights we find in passages like Psalm 42, Nights we find like the moment Jesus wept over the reality that his friend Lazarus had died. Right? So joy is not the absence of sadness. I want to make that very clear. In a few months, Lord willing, Dean and I will be dropping off our oldest at college, and that will be a sad day for us. But under that sadness, there will be great joy because of what she means to us and what we see in her. And so it's where we get that expression, tears of joy, right? Sadness and joy can go together. And so for the Christian, for every Christian, underneath the darkest clouds, there is a delightful confidence in the Lord who saved you. That's what joy is. Now, why, why does this matter so much? Why is joy so very important? Because our joy reveals what we rely on. Our joy reveals what we love and, and who we rely on. Our joy is like an x-ray machine that lets you look inside the chest and see what's pumping in your heart. I love how one pastor put it long ago. He said, whatever a man trusts in, from that he expects happiness. Right? Show me what makes you happy, and I'll show you what you trust in. Do you trust in your kids? You're going to expect them to be the source of your happiness. Do you trust in your spouse? Or for those who are single, do you trust in a future spouse? 
right? If that's what brings you happiness, that's what you're trusting in. Do you trust in your stuff? If that's true, your stuff is going to make you happy and the absence of your stuff is going to make you sad. Right? Joy is important because it reveals what we really care about. It reveals what we're relying upon. Now, let me give you an example from the Bible. Jehoshaphat was one of Judah's greatest kings, and he fought idolatry. Uh, he regularly sought God's wisdom. He worked hard to lead a nation. And, and great leaders have great problems. And Jehoshaphat one day had a great problem. There were many armies that were ready to overtake his kingdom, his, his armies. He could not keep his neighbors from attacking him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat and his army is completely surrounded. They have no earthly hope of survival, right? The odds are entirely against them. Now, we've all been there. Just to leave Jehoshaphat for a moment, we've all been there, right? There are situations where everything seems very grim. You know, is this quarantine ever going to end? Yes, it's going to end. But there are moments where it seems like it's going to last forever. This past few weeks, I have talked to so many of you, and you've shared stories with me. You've shared about family members who don't know Christ. And sometimes you, you think that there's just no, there's no earthly hope. Some of you have had to, some of you have been laid off. And some of you have had to lay people off. Some of you have seen your salary cut. These are hard days. Some of you have loved ones in the hospital. And even if they're not in the hospital because of COVID-19, just the fact of being sick right now is unusually distressing, always distressing, but especially distressing right now. What do you do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, Jehoshaphat did the right thing. He prayed with profound honesty. He admitted his weakness. And this is what he prayed. He said, oh God, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. Right? That one of the greatest kings of Judah, that's how he prayed. Oh God, we do not know what to do. Do you ever pray like that? It's a real prayer. It's a humble prayer. Maybe you prayed like that when you just weren't sure you could handle another rejection or another failure, another day of singleness, uh, another day of marriage, another day of parenting, another day of quarantine. Right? Jehoshaphat felt that way. And he knew the temptation to despair. And so he confessed to God, we do not know what to do. Like our military manuals have not trained us for this. But that isn't how Jehoshaphat ended his prayer. He ended his prayer with these words, but our eyes are on you. It's hard to imagine he prayed with his head bowed and his eyes closed. You know, but our eyes are on you. Lord, we do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. You do know what to do. We trust you. He fixed his eyes on the one who had the power to help him. He fixed his eyes on the one who had proven himself faithful, both to his people and to himself. He fixed his eyes on the one whom he knew would never let him down. And so I love that prayer. Oh God, our eyes are on you. There is joy in words like that. 
For King Jehoshaphat, in the shadow of war, he looked for God to lead his people, and that's joy, delightful confidence in the God who saved you. Oh Lord, our eyes are on you. Joy is important because it reveals what you rely on. It reveals what you trust. So in this world, we will have trials and tribulation, but take heart, Christ has overcome the world. Our eyes are on him. Right? In this world, things will go wrong. Well, we've always known that. That is such an obvious thing and barely needs to be said aloud. Things will go wrong. But it does seem unusually obvious when COVID-19 has the world on lockdown. Dreams can go unfulfilled. Savings accounts can be depleted. Spouses can get sick and die. But our hope isn't in dreams, and our hope isn't in savings accounts, and our hope isn't even in spouses. Our hope is in Christ. Our eyes are on Him. And when we fix our eyes on Him, we are rejoicing in Him. He is our joy. On the worst day of our life, the Christian's delightful confidence is in the Lord who saved him. It's when we show the world that it's in the Lord that we trust. And so that's why joy is so important. It shows others what you trust. So if you're a Christian, it shows whom you trust. And this is such an encouragement. So do you realize that the joy, the joy that you show in the Lord encourages your brothers and sisters to put their confidence in him as well, even when times are tough. Well, now that we know what joy is, delightful confidence in the God of your salvation, now that we know why joy is so important because it shows everyone whom we trust, we've got to ask one more question. Well, can we be more joyful? Like, can we grow in this area? This is such an important question. And I know it's a painful issue for many believers who particularly struggle to express joy. Maybe you would even say you struggle to feel joy. So what can we do? Let me end this morning with five answers to the question, what can we do? Right, first, fight for joy, fight. I say fight because if it wasn't a struggle, Paul would not have had to command rejoice always, right? It's not, it's not natural. You're, you're fighting against indwelling sin, against your flesh when you experience and express joy, right? Growing in joy is a part of growing in our overall holiness. And holiness does not come easily, right? Holiness is hard work. Sanctifying is hard work. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, God will do it. That's how Paul ends 1 Thessalonians, lest anyone leave his letter relying upon themselves. But that reality of God's sovereign work of sanctification in the life of a believer is not an excuse to lie down on your couch and wait for the U.S. Postal Service to deliver sanctification in the mail. It doesn't work like that. We fight. When we fight for joy. And so your days, every day, is filled with circumstances 
that seek to rob you of your joy. Your circumstances do not want you to be delightfully confident in the God who saved you. Your circumstances will lie to you. COVID-19 may say to you, what kind of God do you worship who can't stop a tiny little virus? He's not worthy of your confidence. Right? Another week of quarantine may say, God is not enough for you. See, you're, you're nothing without your job. You're nothing without your routine. You're nothing without your friends. And Satan will use every trial to whisper in your ear, don't you see, God isn't really on the throne. He's not on your side. Don't delight in him. Enjoy counters and says, fight for me. Joy says no one is greater, no one is more reliable, no one is more trustworthy than the God who not merely made you, but than the God who saved you. Fight for joy. It's really not an option. <laughs> it's a must. You need to fight for it. All right, number two, remember that everyone is different. Remember that everyone is different. And, and by everyone, I'm referring to everyone within the church. So right now I'm speaking of a group of people known as Christians. And I'm saying every Christian is different. It can be discouraging when you feel like you always have to fight for joy, especially when you see others for whom the fight seems less strenuous, and yet they seem to experience or display great joy. Now, a small aside, I think we need to be careful to assume that our joyful friend is not, in fact, fighting more vigorously than you, right? But for a moment, let's assume that there are some people who, for whatever reason, the fight for joy doesn't seem to be super necessary because they just seem really joyful, if not all the time, much of the time. I don't want to let any of you off the hook, right? You, regardless of whether it's easy or hard, as I just said, you do need to fight for joy. It's not optional. But I want you to realize that everyone is different. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. We're not the same. So, for example, joy is just one of nine pieces of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5. Now, there are many other. There's many more uh, pieces of the fruit of the Spirit than the nine that Paul lists in Galatians 5. But joy is just one of them. It's just one. And so if you struggle to be joyful, I wouldn't waste your time comparing yourself to Bob, who may be really joyful, because Bob may really struggle with patience. And you may not struggle with patience very much. Bob may really struggle with faithfulness. But you, by God's grace, and I mean it by God's grace, are very reliable. You see, we, we, we're all different. There's going to be different, different characteristics of a Christian that you might be unusually marked by. So don't lose time. Don't waste time comparing yourself to other believers. Right? Remember, everyone is different. And if you have to fight for joy harder than your Christian brother or sister, praise God. That's okay. Maybe be thankful that there are other things you don't need to fight for as much because God's Spirit has uniquely filled you with other blessings. Remember, everyone is different. Number three, beware of joy killers. Beware of joy killers. 
So let me give you a picture. What, what happens when you leave ice, an ice cube on your finger? Right? Picture that. What happens when an ice cube is, is put on your finger and it just stays there? Well, give it some time and the nerve endings in your finger will go numb. You really won't be able to feel much of anything at all. Uh, leave that ice there. Let's say it's dry ice. Leave it there long enough and you'll never feel anything again. The nerve endings will, in fact, be killed. Well, we need to be careful about things in the world that can numb or kill our joy. I'm talking about anything, anything that attacks our ability to be delightfully confident in the God who saved us. About a year ago, economist Jonathan Rothwell wrote an essay for the New York Times where he analyzed the power of television. Studies show that certain programs have the ability to, to raise IQs or lower IQs, and certain programs are able to shape and form your values and your, your preferences. And so some have said, you know, you are, you, you, it's not just that you are what you eat, you are what you watch, they say. Now, I know this is a an odd time to be taking a hit at entertainment and TV right now during the quarantine. Mom and dad, I get it. These are strange times and I wouldn't be surprised if your kids are watching a little bit more TV than they normally do. Nonetheless, we as Christians have to be aware that Satan is very savvy and he doesn't need to attack Christianity directly to take our eyes off of Christ, right? He can do it subtly. He can do it sneakily. He can do it over time by numbing the nerve endings so that we begin to take joy in the wrong things. So what I'm saying is if the majority of your thrills, if the majority of your laughter, right? If the majority of your your happiness, right? your sense of satisfaction, your sense of awe. If the majority of that is coming via Netflix or via ESPN when there once was sports or via Disney Plus, right? Via HGTV, right? If the majority of your thrills are coming through those avenues, well, then you, you really shouldn't be surprised when one morning you wake up and you have a hard time engaging God in his word and prayer, nothing, nothing mystical has happened. You've simply been applying the ice of the world too long to the heart that God gave you. And you're going to grow numb to the genuine joy of the Lord. And so the, the solution is to be aware of that to pull back where you can and to engage the fight where it needs to be engaged, where all of a sudden your Bible study is serious enough, your prayers are hearty enough that you're beginning to renew your thrill in the things of God. Now, this is going to come as we engage God in the world that he's made, as we begin to be thrilled again by creation, that's a beautiful thing, as we laugh more by talking with friends than we do from watching friends, and of course, as we engage God in his word 
and in his prayer. These are, these are good gifts from the Lord. So we can be thankful for passive entertainment, which are all the things that I just mentioned before. And there's so many more. There's so many more. We can be thankful for them, right? They have a, they have a, a role to play, but they make no mistake. They will rob you of your joy in the Lord by numbing you to the things of God. All right, number four, related, pray for joy. Pray for joy. That should be obvious, but I want to make it very clear. Joy is a gift. It's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That means it comes from the Lord to us. So we need to pray for it. If it comes from the Lord to us, we need to pray for it. Right? God wants us to make requests of him. Even though God knows what we want, he wants to train us to want the right things. And so we're to pray for joy. I'm reminded of Augustine's prayer, this time a prayer that he made as a Christian, Lord, command what you will and will what you command. Well, the Lord has commanded joy. First Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Doesn't get much clearer than that. That's the command. Here's the prayer. Lord, will it, will it in my life. Give me joy. Right? Give me an inward affection that's on display and this outward expression of gladness and song and delight. Lord, will what you command. Joy, joy isn't the fruit of willpower. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And number five, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Remember Jehoshaphat. On his darkest day, his eyes were on the Lord. He kept his eyes fixed on Christ. And this is, it's the most important thing I can say about joy. Right? If you aren't a Christian, you need to hear this. I hope that you have Christian friends, Christian family, and I hope that they model for you the kind of joy I've been talking about this morning. But if you want that kind of joy, if you want to be able to go through life really just delightfully confident in God, there's only one way. There is only one way, and that's to have the eyes of your heart fixed on God. It means to trust in Christ, to believe in his death, to believe in his, what Christians call his atoning death. He died to make atonement for us because we are all natural born rebels, all born doing what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. And because of that rebellion, we deserve hell and judgment. But God in his kindness has made a way salvation, which is found by grace alone, which means it's a gift of God through faith alone in Christ alone, Christ who is God in the flesh. Do you want joy? Look to Christ. There's no other way. If you're a Christian and you're really struggling with joy, like really struggling it, here's my counsel. Stop looking for it and start looking to Christ. You cannot keep looking at Christ as a believer without growing in joy. As COVID-19 keeps churning, we are praying for revival, and that means we are praying for joy. So remember Psalm 85, verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for Mount Vernon. Let's be a joyful people now more than ever. Not a people with a fake smile on our faces. Remember, there can be joy in sadness, 
But let's be a people so convinced of who God is and what he's done that when the, wa- when the rushing waters of trials come our way, the rock of our faith will not be moved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God and there is no other. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray with Jehoshaphat, we don't know how to get out of this mess, but our eyes are on you. Lord, we pray for it. We pray for joy. Give us a delightful confidence in in who you are. Remind us of such a great salvation purchased by Christ because we love you and because we need you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.